Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 48. Uh, We'll be looking at the entire chapter. Genesis 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In the year 1862, uh, Victor Hugo published his famous novel, uh, Les Mis. Um, Les Mis was a famous novel in those days and almost 160 years later that story is still a famous story because it's been adapted into a a Broadway musical and been given various film adaptations. But Les Mis is a story about a man named Jean Valjean and uh, Jean Valjean is a man whose life is is set up very early on uh, by two times when he steals something. His whole life is framed by two instances where he steals something. Very early on, Jean Valjean steals a loaf of bread to feed the children of his sister. He's caught, he's arrested, he's put in prison. 
And in connection with that theft, he meets a man named Javert. Javert is a police inspector, and Javert spends the rest of his life pursuing Jean Valjean, trying to bring him back to prison. For Javert, who represents the pitiless, merciless nature of the law, Javert was always trying to bring Javert back to prison because a convict is always a convict from his perspective. But the second time that uh, Jean Valjean steals something, the situation is very, very different. Um, after Jean Valjean is released, after serving his prison time, is released as a parolee, uh, he needs help. He needs someone to give him something to eat and a place to stay and a church. He finds this refuge in a church and a bishop brings him in, gives him food to eat, a place to sleep that night. But in spite of that great kindness that the bishop shows him, Jean Valjean in the middle of the night leaves and steals the silver candlesticks from the church. Well, once again, Jean Valjean is arrested and he's brought back to the bishop and he's made to give account for his crimes. But the bishop does not take the uh, pitiless, merciless nature of Javert. Instead, he says, no, I gave him those silver candlesticks. And he even asks, Jean Valjean, you actually forgot one of the ones that I had also given you. He doesn't deserve it, but the bishop gives Jean Valjean grace in that moment. And from that point on, Jean Valjean's life is never the same. He's been captivated by this idea of grace, and he tries to live his entire life as a reflection of that. Now, I think both of those two scenes, when Jean Valjean steals things two different times, give a really good um, impression of the two ways that we can think about our sin. Sometimes, very often actually, when we think about our sin, we have an impulse to try to categorize and classify our sin in the, in, the, in the category of, well, I was stealing bread to feed children sort of a thing. If you knew what I was doing, if you knew why I was doing it, you really wouldn't have a problem with it. You probably wouldn't even call it sin. And so we reduce the standard of the law to justify our actions. But the other scene is what the Bible instead calls us to. It's to recognize that we can't justify what we have done. In fact, we stand guilty of a heinous crime. It's a terrible thing to repay evil when someone extends to us good. And God has extended us lavish good. And we all have repaid him with evil, with sin. But God calls us not to justify what we have done before him, but instead to depend upon nothing but his mercy and his grace alone. And through the whole Bible, we hear the promise of the gospel announced again and again that this is exactly how God blesses sinners. We heard it in Psalm 32 that we sang today. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We heard it in the call to confession that when the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Over and over, the Bible tells us not to justify ourselves, but to lean upon God's grace to be justified in God's sight. Well, the story of Jacob is a story of a scoundrel. He is a man who sins many ways at many times against many people throughout the course of his life. But Jacob, unlike Jean Valjean, is not transformed the first time God extends to him grace. Rather, he keeps needing grace again and again, and he keeps failing, and he keeps sinning, and God extends to him grace again, and Jacob never really understands what that means until our story today. It's taken him 147 years of his life, but he finally gets grace. He finally has his mind around the economy of God in saving undeserving 
sinners. And so our big idea as we look at this passage is this, that God extends unmerited favor to his people. Unmerited favor is a definition for what grace is. God extends unmerited favor to his people. And so we are going to see this favor, this unmerited favor, this grace in three ways. First, past grace. Second, present grace. And then third, future grace. Past grace, present grace, and future grace. The past grace comes in verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, Joseph is told that his father Jacob has fallen ill, and so Joseph takes his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim to visit his father. Now notice in verse 1 that these sons are listed as Manasseh and Ephraim, and that's right, that's their birth order. But this is the last time they will be listed in this order according to the order of their birth. From here on out, they will always be called Ephraim and Manasseh, and there's a reason to that which we will get to in a moment. But when Joseph and his sons come and present themselves before Jacob, Joseph's father and the grandson to the boys, Jacob begins with a story. He begins by telling the faithfulness and especially the grace that God has extended to him in the past. And if you look at the words and compare them with various points in the past, you can see that Jacob is is quoting Genesis 35 when God appeared to him for the second time at Luz, uh, that is at Bethel. And so Jacob is telling this story, and what's interesting is if you compare Genesis 35 with what Joseph says here. It's Genesis 35 verses 10 through 12, which Jacob is quoting here. And if you compare the two, you'll see that there are three really important differences. And that by these differences, Jacob is reflecting on and telling us something of how he understands what God was doing for him in the past before he had fully understood grace as he does at this moment at the very end of his life. The first key difference comes at the very beginning of what God said in Genesis 35, verse 10. God began the whole thing by renaming Jacob into Israel. Now, that renaming is important because Jacob, who goes by Israel, even in this passage, is the father to the nation of Israel. The whole nation of Israel, he's the father of it because he is Israel. But Jacob doesn't mention that part. Why? Well, I I think it's probably right, as some commentators note, that he doesn't want to put the focus on himself and his role. All of the focus that Jacob is giving in this recounting of God's grace toward him in the past is on God and not at all on him. He doesn't want to be in the spotlight. So he sets aside that part and instead goes to Genesis 35 verse 11, where God commanded Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. He gave him commands, be fruitful and multiply. And he made a promise that a company of nations shall come from you. But here, in Genesis 48, when Jacob reflects back on that, he doesn't use the language of command and simply a descriptive kind of a promise. He puts it in causal terms about what God will cause to happen. And so he says in verse 4, quoting God and, and reflecting what he understood, the sense of what God was saying to be, he says, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. That is, I will make you to multiply. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. The focus is not on Jacob, it's on God. And the focus is specifically on God's work to demonstrate grace to a scoundrel Jacob who does not in the least deserve it. Now there's one more difference between these two passages, but we'll have to leave that off until a little bit later in the sermon. The key point here is that Jacob is finally coming to terms. He sees God's grace for what it is in a way that he has not over 147 years of his life. 
And in light of God's unmerited favor toward him, Jacob in turn extends unmerited favor toward Joseph and his sons. And so in verses 5 through 7, Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own children. It seems like a strange thing to adopt your grandchildren when your son is still living. Why would Joseph be okay with this? Isn't that taking his children away from him? But Joseph understands exactly what uh, Jacob, his father, is doing here. By adopting his grandchildren and making these grandchildren into the legal status of his children, just as Reuben and Simeon are his children, then he is giving Ephraim and Manasseh an equal share of the inheritance with all of their uncles. So if Jacob had not done this, when the inheritance came to be split up, then all of the, the sons of, of Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, would all receive an individual portion of the inheritance, including Joseph, who would just receive one portion, and then Ephraim and Manasseh would have to split that single portion. But by adopting Ephraim and Manasseh and lifting them to that level, Ephraim and Manasseh are now going to receive a share right along with all the other sons of Jacob. It's lifting them up a level, giving them a greater share of the inheritance. It's a great kindness toward Ephraim and Manasseh, and it's a great honor toward Joseph, because it means that Joseph will now be the father of two of the tribes of Israel, along with Jacob. So what all of this is showing us is, again, Jacob's reflection on grace in the past that's informing the way that he lives in the present. Many years ago when I was a child, I knew a man who sinned very publicly. Uh, very publicly in a horrible way. The details are not important, but understand this had been a very respected man. And all of that respect vanished in a moment, very publicly. And I will never forget as a child watching this man stand in front of the church and confess his sin and ask forgiveness. It was an amazing moment. It was a powerful moment in my childhood memory for a couple of reasons. First of all was the readiness of the congregation to forgive. Well, they didn't want to punish him. They wanted to forgive. But second, I saw a man not standing there arguing that he deserved better. I saw a man at the end of his wit's end, at the end of his rope, who was saying that he doesn't deserve better. And that the only hope he has is in the grace of God. And I remember subsequently to that, following that, how happy this man was. It was a, it was a marked change in his character. Uh, before this, this man had been a very well-respected man, but before and after, it seemed like before he had been uh, holding everything together. He had been having this sin that was raging in his heart, and he'd been trying to hold it all together. But then once his sin was all exposed and he confessed it, and he received forgiveness from the Lord, there was nothing left to hide. And he was a man who depended upon grace alone. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And this man knew that blessedness. And so does Jacob. Jacob, who is always presumed upon the grace of God, going right back into his scheming sinful ways again and again, now at the end of his life, as a man who is happy and who is content, as a man who recognizes the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God that he's received his entire lifetime up until now. Unmerited favor or grace is at the heart of God's relationship with his people, then as well as now. But the, un the value system of grace is a very hard thing for us to get our minds around because it doesn't make sense. We like things that make clear sense. This deserves that. 
whereas the, the grace of God doesn't operate on that accounting system. We want to evaluate on merit, but God evaluates by grace. And again, it's taken Jacob 147 years to realize this, but he finally does. And we see this not in what Jacob does in these first seven verses, but what Jacob does in the next section, in verses 8 through 20, the second section, the present grace. In verse 8, we read, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, and again, Israel is another name for Jacob. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now, some people think that Jacob, at the end of his life, maybe can't see them very well. His eyesight is bad. Uh, or maybe he spent most of his life away from them, so he doesn't totally know who his grandchildren are. But I, I think probably the better way to understand this is what people suggest, um, uh, commentators suggest uh, talking about this passage is, think about a wedding ceremony. You know, I performed several weddings, and at the beginning of the wedding, one of the questions I ask is, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Now, I know the answer. In fact, I practiced the answer with the, the, the bride and her family the night before at the rehearsal. I'm not ignorant of the information. But I ask that question because it's a part of the formal presentation of the parties who are going to enter into the solemn vow of marriage. And so here as Joseph begins to enter into the solemn uh, procedure of giving this blessing, this isn't just a, a well wish, I hope you guys have a great life. He's doing something very formal and important. And so this is a part of the formal presentation of Joseph's sons. And so Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And so Jacob calls them toward him, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. But in verse 10, we read something very interesting. Now, earlier we saw when, when Jacob saw these, when Israel saw these, he said, who are these? But in verse 10, we, re we read something about the eyes of Jacob. Now, the eyes of Israel were dim with age, verse 10, so that he could not see. Now, there's a lot going on here. Part of this is to recall back Genesis 27, when Jacob himself had received a blessing from his own father, Isaac. Uh, Genesis 27, verse 1, the beginning of that story began this way. Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. Isaac was in the same position then that Jacob is now. But remember, Jacob exploited the blindness of his father. He dressed up as Esau, whom his father intended to bless, in order to steal the blessing from Esau. Well, here we read in verse 8 that Israel saw his grandsons, but then again in verse 11, Israel sees something again. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Now this is all very confusing. Can Jacob see or can't he? Which is it? Can he see or can he not see? Well, the answer is, and this is what the, the author of, of Genesis is trying to get at, and we see this through the whole Bible, is that there are different ways of seeing. There are ways where we see with our eyes and judge according to outward appearances, and there are the ways that we see by faith, judging according to the standards that God has established. And the reason that's important is what comes next in this blessing. We read that when uh, Israel begins to give these blessings, uh, Joseph has brought his sons forward so that the older is, is in Joseph's left hand to be blessed by the right hand of, of Jacob, that's Manasseh, whereas the younger is brought forward by Joseph's right hand to be blessed by the left hand of, of Jacob, that would be Ephraim. But when they come together, Jacob crosses his hands to give the right hand, the greater blessing, to the younger, to Ephraim, rather than to the older, the firstborn, Manasseh. And he gives this incredible blessing, this beautiful blessing about how the, uh, through these boys, uh, God will cause to, go, to grow them into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
But we read in verse 17 another seeing, another time that someone sees something. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Now that's a very weak translation. It's not it displeased him, it's it was evil in his eyes. When he saw this, it was evil in his eyes. Now the themes of good and evil have been throughout the Joseph story and indeed the whole book of Genesis. So it's a really significant thing for Joseph to see that this was an evil thing in his eyes for his father Jacob to do this. This is one of the only, if not the only time we read where Joseph's um, evaluation of something is not true. It's not accurate. And why? Well, because Joseph is evaluating with his real eyes. He's evaluating externally by what he can see and by what he understands of the world's values that the firstborn should be blessed above the younger brother. Whereas Jacob sees this correctly because he sees not according to his eyesight. We're told that he's blind. He can't see. He is instead evaluating by faith for the first time in his life. For the first, he's, he's acted by faith at various points, but here he finally gets it. It all comes together, and he understands by faith the way the grace of God is extended toward his people. And so we read that even after Joseph tries to correct this, what was evil in his eyes, Jacob explains that he knows exactly what he's doing, and he blessed the sons again that day, saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus we read in verse 20, Jacob put Ephraim before Manasseh. Well, what you might be wondering, does this accomplish? How is Ephraim blessed above Manasseh? Well, the story of Ephraim and Manasseh, especially Ephraim, is a story of one step forward, two steps backward. We see that Ephraim is given special privileges, but then something usually happens to set Ephraim back. So in the book of Numbers, when you come to the very first census to number all the people of Israel, Ephraim has 8,000 more people than the tribe of Manasseh. So Ephraim is greater than Manasseh. But then by the end of the book of Numbers, Ephraim grows a little and Manasseh grows a lot. So that by the end of the book of Numbers, Manasseh has 20,000 people more than Ephraim does. The next time we see Ephraim come up, is that Ephraim is the tribe from which Joshua comes. Joshua, the great leader who leads God's people into the promised land, is from the tribe of Ephraim. But then once the Israelites are settled in the land of Canaan, both Ephraim and Manasseh are explicitly listed as failing to drive the Canaanites out from their inheritance. And so they're going to be uh, captured and enslaved to worship the the false gods of the Canaanites uh, throughout the rest of their history. But the other difference, or the other way in which um, Ephraim is blessed above Manasseh gets back to that third difference from Genesis 35. I mentioned it earlier, there were three differences from Genesis 35. The third difference I didn't mention is that Joseph, or Jacob does not recall the fact, as we read in Genesis 35, that God had also promised that kings shall come from your body. He said to Jacob, God said to Jacob, kings shall come from your body, but Jacob does not say that to Joseph or to his children. Now, we know part of the reason for that, because in the next chapter, when Jacob blesses all of his sons, he is going to insist that it is from the tribe of Judah from which the scepter will never depart. Judah will be the tribe from which David arises, and ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ will be from the tribe of Judah. But here's the thing. Joseph does have kings come from him. The very first kings of the northern nation of Israel are from the tribe of Ephraim. 
Ephraim is blessed above Manasseh by having kings come from the tribe of Ephraim. Jeroboam, the son of uh, Nebat, and Jeroboam's son Nadab are both uh, from the tribe of Ephraim. But again, one step forward, two steps back. Very quickly, Jeroboam will become entangled in sin and idolatry, and God cuts off the house of Jeroboam. And again, Jacob does not restate that here as though he is saying that the only king who really matters I'll talk about in the next chapter, and he will come from the tribe of Judah. So Jacob, in all of this, we are seeing, after being trained by a lifetime of receiving unmerited favor, Jacob now sees by faith exactly whom to bless and how to bless them. He blesses the children of Joseph and Joseph as well, and he blesses them by blessing Ephraim, the younger, above the firstborn Manasseh. Jacob has finally learned that God does not reward those who are the most deserving. God rewards on the basis of grace, of unmerited favor. Ephraim is not the firstborn. He doesn't deserve this. But by external standards, it should be Manasseh, the firstborn, to get this special blessing. But elderly blind Jacob sees far more clearly than Joseph in his prime eyesight does. Jacob sees that grace is something that he can only see by faith. And on the basis of that faith, Jacob will now in the next section, the final section, the last two verses, make two final promises to Joseph in particular. These are not promises that Joseph will enjoy in his lifetime. They are promises that Joseph can only receive by faith to be fulfilled and entered into after Joseph's death far in the future. So this brings us to the third section, future grace, in verses 21 through 22. In verse 21, we read, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. So the first promise that Jacob makes to Joseph is that God will be with Joseph and will bring Joseph back to the land of his fathers, the land of Canaan. Now again, this will not be fulfilled during Joseph's lifetime. Jacob, immediately after his death, will be immediately brought to the land of Canaan and buried there. But that's not going to be the case for Joseph. When Joseph dies, he will be embalmed uh, after the practice of the Egyptians. And then 400 years later, when the Israelites come out of the land of Egypt, they're going to take with them Joseph's bones. And if that weren't gross enough, they are going to carry Joseph's bones through their 40 years in the wilderness. I don't know who had to carry Joseph's bones, but they're going to carry them for 40 years in the wilderness. And then, after the conquest is finished in the land of Canaan, only then will Joseph be buried in Shechem in the land of Canaan, almost 500 years after he is dead. Verse 22 then enters into a second promise. Jacob, in related fashion, says, Moreover, I have given you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now this word one mountain slope is, is just the word Shechem, which you could um, either translate as, that as one mountain slope or it could refer to the place name Shechem. And so commentators kind of go different directions. But this probably refers to Shechem because in Joshua 24 verse 32, that's the place where Joseph eventually will be buried at Shechem. So how did Jacob get this land? Well, this probably refers to the land of the Hivites in Shechem, uh, where Levi and Simeon slaughtered all of the men in that land in Genesis 34. Now Jacob at that time was furious. He says that he was the warrior who uh, God delivered him in by his sword and his bow, but Jacob was furious that Levi, Levi and Simeon did this. And so Jacob never lives there, but his sons do sometimes go there to find a pasture for their sheep. For example, in Genesis 37 verse 12, they went to, uh, to Shechem to pasture the sheep. 
Both of these promises then deal with what God will do for Joseph after death. They provide Joseph with a a share or a participation in God's promises to give his people the land of Canaan, but Joseph will only enter into that after he dies. Well, as we talked about last week, uh, with Jacob's desire to be buried in the land of Canaan, this promise is only valuable if Joseph believes that God will raise the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then it doesn't matter where Joseph's bones are buried. But because Joseph believes that God will raise the dead, the place where he is buried does have importance. This promise has no value now, but Joseph, by faith, looks forward to this promise that we will be fulfilled after his lifetime. Well, we see then throughout this story that Jacob is reflecting on the fact that God extends unmerited favor to his people. And so how do we apply this? Well, I want to give sort of a big application and then break it down into three parts. The big application is if this is true, that God extends unmerited favor to his people, then the application is this. Walk by faith, not by sight. Walk by faith, not by sight. Again, for most of Jacob's life, he lived by sight. When his eyesight was in his prime, he exploited his blind father. But now when he is blind, he is finally able to see clearly by faith. So much so that even the pious Joseph struggles with walking by faith in this story. Understand, Christianity is about walking by faith and not by sight. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says. For we walk by faith and not by sight. But what does that mean to walk by faith? Well, here's the first part of this application. Number one, to walk by faith means that we must root ourselves in God's grace that is extended to us in the past. We've got to root ourselves in God's grace toward us in the past. So in other words, rather than trying to look at your past and use that as the basis to make a case, an argument, to argue that you deserve better than what you have received, you should look at your past and reflect on the fact that you deserve far worse than what you have received. And that you have been entirely dependent on every moment of your life on the grace of God toward you. That's what Jacob is doing here. He's reflecting back on the promises of God that were made to him back in Genesis 35. Promises that God has now fulfilled and is continuing to fulfill. Well, for us, we have such greater promises. God has given us a greater demonstration of his faithfulness and a promise never to leave us or forsake us. Verse 21, God will be with you. Through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of God's only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave that for us to have our faith rooted in something that was real in history. Walking by faith isn't a leap of faith. That's a different way of looking at faith. We walk by faith. We don't leap by faith. A leap of faith means you're just going blindly into something that you have no idea what's going to happen. It's it's faith divorced from any kind of reason or understanding. But for us, when we walk by faith, even if we can only see a step ahead at a time, as God's word as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path illuminates just that next step. When we walk by faith, we are discerning, knowing what we know from God's character of how he has acted in the past, of how he will act in the future, even if we don't know what that will be. We know God will be faithful, we just don't know the details of what that will be. We know that if God did not spare his only son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will God withhold anything good from us? as Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 32. The question I want to ask you, first of all, is have you trusted, have you rooted yourself by faith 
in God's grace toward you by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you trusted that he is your only hope, that you cannot bring God's legal standard down so that you can jump over a lower bar? You don't deserve better, but have you recognized that you deserve far worse and that God has paid every bit of the penalty that you require through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him for your salvation? That's the first question we must ask. The second question is this, or the second thing that we need to do, is we must learn to discern good from evil in spite of outward appearances. It's so easy to look at this world and to judge the world by outward appearances, what things seem to be. So that when Israel blesses Ephraim above Manasseh, it was evil in Joseph's eyes. Again, this is so contrary to Joseph's usual character. He was able to look, overlook all the suffering that he endured through his entire lifetime. And in Genesis 50, he will say, God meant this to me for good, even though you meant it for evil. He doesn't see it as evil because he recognizes God's goodness. That's seeing by faith. Joseph usually does that, but not here. He looks according to the external circumstances and judges it that way. The ongoing goal of Christianity, then, is to grow in our day-to-day discernment of good from evil. And that's going to require us, first of all, to grow in the knowledge of what God says in His Word. If we can't judge externally, then we've got to be rooted and grounded in what God says in His Word. That's the only way to live by faith, is to know what God has said so that we can apply it. But the second thing is that we need to grow in our skill of discerning between good and evil. And this means that we need to be trained by constant practice in discerning between good and evil. That's what Hebrews 5 verse 14 says. It means we're constantly bringing Scripture to bear on everything in our life. To say, even though this seems to be good, the Bible says it's evil. Even though this seems to be evil, the Bible says that it is good. And I'm going to live based not on what I can see, but on the basis of what God has said. I'm going to live by faith. Understand, that's going to require thousands of trial runs, thousands of time practicing, and it will mean thousands of failures over the course of our life. But the third thing we need to do then as part of this is that we need to grow in the faith that chooses what is good and turns from what is evil. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to love it and to choose it. Let me encourage you today then, if you are not seriously studying God's Word, start today. If you are not seriously attempting to, the, to practice what it means to discern between good and evil on the basis of what God says in His Word by faith rather than by external appearance, start today. And if you have been giving in to evil when you should be giving in to what is good and shrinking back from what you know to be good, start to lean on what is good, to choose what is good today. And if you are stuck, please ask for help. One of the greatest joys of pastoral ministry is helping people to get unstuck when they are stuck in their sin. The Bible gives us such great promises and power by the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus and to follow Him in the way that He has shown us. We can't always do it perfectly, but we can grow, and that is our mandate to grow. If you're stuck, please ask for help. So how then is the Word of God training you to discern between good and evil? Well, the third application of walking by faith and not by sight, means that walking by faith means setting our confidence beyond this life on the resurrection of the dead. Joseph was a man who had everything, not through all his life, but at this point in his life, he has everything. He's the ruler right under Pharaoh over all of Egypt. 
He has all the wealth, all the power that he could ever want. So what do you get, a man who has everything? Well, Jacob gives Joseph a very special gift. He gives Joseph hope beyond the grave. He gives Joseph the hope and the promise of God that Joseph would have a personal participation in God's promises even after his death as his body is buried in Canaan. Now we have a much greater hope, brothers and sisters. Not about where our bodies will be buried, but that our bodies will not remain buried. That Christ is coming again and he, when he comes, he will raise those of us who are in Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, life is so short. Death comes for us all. This week we're still grieving the loss of a dear friend and brother, Mark Stans. And if you knew him and loved him, this has been a hard week as we grieve his loss this week. But if Mark were here, having been now in the presence of Jesus, he would want us to know how important it is to live not for this life, but to live for the life to come and to understand that death is coming and we need to prepare for it today. How pitiable and how miserable are our existences if this life only is all that we had. But God promises something extraordinary, namely that Christ is coming again and when he comes he will raise from the dead all those who believe in him. So the question, is your confidence, your satisfaction, your hope, your joy in what you can gain from this world, the things that you can see and get your hands on? Or is your hope and the confidence in the resurrection of the dead beyond the grave? God extends unmerited favor to his people. So don't approach him by trying to insist that you deserve something better from him. He rejects that approach entirely. Instead, come to him in the way that he promises, the way that he offers, the way that he extends to us by the grace that is offered through his son, Jesus Christ, who died so that you might live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would indeed build us up in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would know him and that we would love him and that through Christ, you would raise us from the dead on the last day. Father, give us hope in this life, but not in this life alone, as we await the coming of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.